Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome, everyone, back to another edition of New Books in Education. This is your host, Ryan Allen, and today I'm excited to bring you a book that I think I haven't quite uh, had this type of book on, on, on the show before, and so that's why I'm excited to bring on uh, Nadim uh, Bakashov with his book, Against Capitalist Education, What is Education for? And this is Zero Books, 2015. And the reason why I say it's something I haven't really had before, because this is done in sort of uh, converse, conversational form. So... Uh, I think it's exciting to, to get different forms of writing. And uh, uh, Nod, thank you very much for uh, joining me today. Uh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Um, if you could, before we get into the book, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, you're over in the UK right now. What was your yeah. education background or how did you get into to education and, and writing as well? Okay. Um, I'm almost um, 50 so it sort of gives you an idea that for a, I started life as an astrophysicist at University College London. And while I was doing my astrophysics degree, I found myself stumbling upon the massive difference between everyday life and its messiness and the pristine world of um, theoretical physics. And I thought um, what the world really needs or what would be a great thing to attempt, whether it's doable or not, is to create a kind of mathematics or a logical system or something that, that echoes the kind of power that maths has in the natural sciences for something equivalent in the human sciences. So that set me off on a road of basically uh, I stepped out I, I left behind, although I went back and I did a philosophy degree and I've done subsequent masters in um, software engineering, just mainly to pay my way. I basically made, I made the decision to stay out of the academy and pursue this singular approach and see where it would lead to lead me. Mm-hmm. And so if I fast forward very quickly to where we are now, um, in the last three or four years, this system, this, I, this set of ideas and, that I developed, which is a complete departure for anything that I recognize, um, but admittedly I've been working in fair isolation, um, I thought, actually, I really want to get it out now. Um, in the meantime, I've had all these various day jobs, worked in banking, worked in all over the place. One of those classic images of the romantic poet, but in this case, it's more like an image of a romantic philosopher, Mm. someone who sits in isolation and just does their thing. And I thought, now I'd really like to try and get it out. But then I thought, I've got a huge obstacle. Our current education system is so much weighted against this type of approach that I've developed that really the first question I need to ask is, what's A, what is wrong with our education? What would I do with education? And how would I try to communicate it? So that kind of formed the mate, the background, out of which this book emerged as a um, a response. Yeah, I I mean, I think it's great that when we get people who weren't necessarily trained exactly in in education or, or in this field, 
and then come in with this sort of different eye or different view. I think I think that's actually important and, and healthy for um, sort of having ideas or different ideas or, or new innovations. Uh, so that's fantastic. Uh, and, and astrophysics, bringing, bringing uh, the hard sciences over to uh, maybe social sciences, someone who's a uh, social scientist. Uh, yeah, so if we could, maybe let's, let's jump into the book a bit. Okay. You, you, so it's set in different, uh, different acts or a conversational form, but, but you, yeah. you open us up with this preface and just kind of describing your experiences of uh, uh, reading through different either writing styles of um, yeah. philosophers. So can you yeah. kind of maybe jump into, I think, uh, sort of that inspiration or, or what you were sort of thinking about uh, uh, reading those different uh, uh, philosophers? Okay, yeah. I mean, very simply, why write in a conversation? Why write in a form that's quite unusual for people to see? I mean, there are a few books out there and currently written which are present an argument or a discussion but are, are written as a conversation. So this is quite unusual. It was a bit of a risk. Mm. But the motivation and the inspiration actually came from Plato. Mm. Um, and Plato, I suppose, if people do know anything about Plato, they might see him as a long, distant, ancient, fairly irrelevant, you know, wrote a bunch of balmy ideas about forms, wrote kind of something verging on totalitarianism. Um, So why would anyone take inspiration from him, for example? Mm -hmm. But the reason I did is because part of the book argues that Plato, who set up the very first higher education institute in any kind of conception we have of what that might mean, the academy, he based it on his own dialogues. Mm -hmm. And uh, he used the dialogue as a form to engage philosophy and bigger questions. It's very unusual in the history of philosophy. I mean, there are a handful of philosophers who've done it. And outside of philosophy and education generally, um, I think that the examples are even fewer. Um, that, but it, the power of it is somewhere in the second book, early on in the second book, he does a very strange thing. And I argue this in the book as well, that what the real point of inspiration is his, he fails in an argument. His main interlocutor, Socrates, fails in convincing everyone that justice is better than an unjust life. And his friends say to him, oh, come on, Socrates, you've just failed. We've just seen you. You can't convince this young guy. He's just hammered you all over the place and knocked you about. Come on, try again. So, but Plato did something really strange. Plato didn't say, OK, I'm going to put together an academic thesis or a thesis or a set of, we have to wait for Aristotle for that type of thinking to come into the play anyway. But he, about 369, line 369 in book two, I think it is, he said, OK, I'm going to do something different. I'm not going to give you an argument of why the just life is better than the unjust life. We're going to imagine a world or rather a city which was just. And we're going to read out of that program. I'm going to go through what they would be constructed, how you would build it. He failed his first attempt, second attempts, fairly crazy. Uh, and then we're going to read out of it what we think justice is for an individual human and for a social form. Mm-hmm. And the history of education and education theory and philosophy of education has generally taken Plato's Republic, which is the book obviously I'm talking about, because he talks in the book about the education of the people who are going to control the city, it's often seen as one of the first books on education. 
But the real, real trick for Plato, which is, I think, I've been largely missed, um, but, you know, I haven't chased every doctorate thesis I can on Plato <laughs> to verify this. Right. Um, but I think the thing that's been missed is the fact that he actually made a very, a completely different move by saying we're going to imagine a city, concrete, as concrete as we can. We're going to read back from that what it means in terms of justice. So I took that inspiration. Shall I carry on or shall I, uh, do you want to jump in? No, go. I mean, I always tell my, uh, my guests that the, the people tune into the podcast to listen to the authors, not, not to me. So, um, but, okay. but I do, I do have an interjection that I would like to ask. So, you know, so, yeah, we, yeah. so we, we, we talk about, you know, the conversation and why that's sort of, uh, important or, or, or something to, to really create. But then I think given the theme of the book, uh, is actually capitalism and the idea that's sort of inundated in our entire lives. So, so why, uh, uh, why and how is this sort of, uh, capitalism, the theme or, or the, or the, or the piece does, that you're sort of okay. going for? Yeah. Here? Why do I pitch it as against capitalist education? It would sound like it's going to be a book of a bit of a rant against capitalism, very left-wing sounding, very appealing to teachers who would who recognize all the various injustices, mm-hmm. the low wages and all the rest of it within the system while bankers are being paid. Okay, that's part of it. But I think the bigger, bigger question for me is that if you were to attempt the question, what an alternative would be like, mm-hmm. it's very, very important to ask the question, what, what do you think is the essential problem with the system as, it, as it's going, the trend, the direction it seems to be moving on a global level? And my instinct is that capitalism, for whichever form and all the benefits it has given us in other contexts, for whatever we understand it to be, and we can neutralise a little bit of the politics, because I don't want it to be so simply and crudely right and left, but if we can just look at it as a system of market logic, a system of consumers, a system in which um, you're justified as a teacher in your role as providing a service to a consumer who's a student, so they'll pay money for their higher education. All this type of logic is, I think, very, very damaging Mm -hmm. for what's essential to an education system and what we would hope a civilising effect or a very... Uh, humanitarian, um, humanistic, rather, idea of what education should be. So, um, so oh, I was yeah. going to say, so it, it sounds like, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, sort of your, your, your contention is that there's a dehumanizing effect from all of these different scripts that we have. If it's, you know, you're, a, you're simply a, a consumer or you're simply X, Y, Z. Whereas then, is that, is that, Kind of what you're That's right. I would just add to that, not just that it dehumanizes. I, I think that, yeah, that definitely goes on, but that it makes the education system fundamentally servile mm-hmm. to economics mm-hmm. and the current systems we have. So one of the really core threads through the book is we need freedom in education if we're to do something quite exciting and, and allow education to be an exciting, genuinely exciting place, which most teachers want it to be, and invent, use the imagination, etc. So civility to a system that in itself is in crisis, and that creates more and more problems for education because it's constantly trying to output people to fit into a system which is itself all over the place. It's quite unstable. Um, so... Um, I would agree. Dehumanizing, 
But the servility element is, I mm. think, one of the greatest dangers because I'm not sure historically um, education has always served a purpose. There's no doubt. The British Empire had a version of education, mass education, which put out administrators for its empire and so on. And I'm not sure that I'm trying to idealise the past in any way. Sure. Um, but I think at this particular moment, we desperately need a kind of global education to allow a new form of civilization to be invented, which is global, which doesn't belong to a particular nation state, for example. That's one of the question, issues I raise. Absolutely. Uh, well, if we could, can you, can you introduce us to the two uh, characters? Because you, you set this up in, in the, this you know, these, uh, academic conversation. Um, yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting, you did mention uh, Plato. Um, so what, what introduce us to John and George and sort of what are their styles and, 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 uh, who they're sort of, uh, uh mirroring if you could, or, or, or if they, you know. yeah, no, I mean, both John and George are homages to figures who are, they're, they're buried within the text, I suppose, to some extent. John Thoreau is a homage to, um, Henry David Thoreau, mm. um, the American transcendentalist. And in particular, I suppose his essay, Civil Disobedience, and um, that, that part of um, Thoreau, the original Thoreau, uh, at the turn of the last century, who thought that the systems, he thought the railroad actually was, um, show, it was a really destructive thing. Now we look nostalgically at old-style railroads and right. think, God, you know, he thought that was bad. He, I would freak if he saw what's going on now. <laughs> but he had the idea that there's a relationship to nature, that... Um, if you don't agree with your government, how do you approach it, non-violent um, disobedience, all those things I personally value enormously. So John Thoreau is a personal homage to him. Mm. And he he reflects to me that kind of instinct um, behind the real figure. The second one, George R. Wells, is a kind of fusion between two figures who I find very, very important. One is George R. Wells. Um, George Orwell, sorry, mm. the um, writer of 1984. Right. Um, and the guy who came with a very privileged education himself, but abandoned it and did all kinds of things like sleep homelessly, live homelessly in Paris. He went to Catalonia. He fought on the part of the, against Franco. But he wrote 1984, which most people know is a massive dystopia um, about the worst possible outcomes for a totalitarian. Now, that's popular culture. So that's one element. So the other is H.G. Wells, mm. um, the writer of um, War of the Worlds. And I suppose with H.G. Wells, I don't know how many people know everything that H.G. Wells wrote, but you know, aside from War of the Worlds, which we had that recent remake, Spielberg recent remake <laughs> with, right. uh, which didn't quite do justice to the spirit of it, I but think, yeah, it, it so. was good in its own way. Um, War of the Worlds was a satire on colonialism. And when I first stumbled into that thought, when I was reading it, I thought, wow, he's putting into popular science fiction some really quite interesting questions about the nature of the society he was part of, late Victorian empire, for example. And later on, H.G. Wells just gave up writing fiction and ended up writing very utopian books about how to make a better world. He was a little bit balmy, I think, and a little bit off the rails when he did that stuff but it's a massive inspiration because one of the things in the book the way that he that those elements combine is that fiction and science fiction of which i'm a huge fan um, 
which is a very popular, we see, you know, it must be the mainstay of Hollywood at the moment. But everyone, whether you think about things or not, enjoy escaping into some science fiction land, whether it's Star Wars, which is more fantasy, but maybe Star Trek is a better example. And so when you look at Star Trek, you provide an opportunity in popular culture of exposing people to alternatives. And for me, I think that the genius, there's another conversation for me to be had about this, about Gene Roddenberry, Mm. was the idea that he had a very idealistic idea of what the future could be. And he tried to inject it into the early um, Star Trek series. So I take that very popular idea that if we're going to do, we're going to think about imagine alternatives, both inside the academic institution and outside, we should galvanize the popularity and the power of science fiction, or sometimes it's called speculative fiction because some of the best science fiction really does make us imagine alternatives. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's so many stories. I mean, Gene Roddenberry, uh, part of the civil rights movement even, where Martin Luther King sort of yeah. looked at it for inspiration and, and uh, I think uh, Okura, which was an African-American, the first time on screen as like this, uh, I think she was... Interracial kids. Yeah, yeah, so so that yeah. I think that's a, that's a great... Um, a great tool to think about as well for the writing. Um, so we kind of got the characters and although they're, they're, I think they mention other people throughout. Um, yeah. Um, I don't know if you want to mention that or, but, but I'm also curious about the setting. Um, uh, I think okay. they, con- they talk about sort of West Hampton and there's also like a cafe or, so can you kind of talk about the, the setting or, or what you're imagining? Okay, yeah. Okay, well, there's one element. One element is where the conversation takes place. And the place takes in a fictional location called the Borges Library, which is a homage to the Argentinian um, writer, um, Borges. And he's nowadays, I suspect he's not read by many, he's often seen as a, re- as a writer's writer, but he was so staggeringly imaginative. He was like a science fiction writer taken to the nth degree. He imagined in one of his books, which is the, probably the pr- one prime motivation, a, an alien species that had uh, a philosophy that was so radically different from our current one. And just by stumbling into this whole question that he throws up in this, this it's almost read like an essay. It really just asks you a question that, wow, you know, we take for granted all of our fantastic 2000 years of um, history, both Western and other cultures as well, which I draw on in the book. But could there be something so radically different and exciting without cancelling out what we have as an alternative that could work, that could inspire us as a species to look at what a global civilization could do? So that, that's part of the setting and why the setting is inspired by him. Sure. The house is also inspired mm. by the German idealist, but I won't go off. That's a bit more obscure. <laughs> sure. Um, West Hampton, the idea of West Hampton was, when I was writing the book, I thought to myself, um, let's. What would be a modern version of the Republic? What you know? What would you do? Well, the Republic is a much bigger attempt. It's to imagine a whole city or effect, effectively a whole society in Plato's mind. I thought, no, I don't think I have quite the skills to be able to do that. So I'll do it on a more modest scale. So I thought, let's imagine a fictional university uh, that would be an exciting place to teach at, but was built and functioned differently. And I was thinking about how I would explain this, um, because there's a little bizarre bit in the book where they talk about engineering and the sciences and the relationship between natural science and engineering. And, you know, most people would accept that you can be good at maths. You would go to university or school and you would become an engineer 
And then you would build bridges, you would help with infrastructure, you would develop new products, perhaps if you're a design engineer, that kind of stuff all makes sense. It's all based on maths and it links to science. So I thought to my mind, what would be the equivalent thing if we were to say to our humanities, what we don't want you to do is be cut out of the picture entirely because everything is turning towards we need engineers. What would an engineer concept work in the humanities? And I don't mean it in terms of the new Ridley Scott concept um, of engineers, which I thought was dreadful. Sure. Um, <laughs> sorry about the footnote. Yeah, I, I agree there. <laughs> yeah. It didn't quite do justice to the alien in my mind. But um, so what would it be? And I thought it's interesting because if you study physics, you study uh, pure theoretical physics. So you'd study Einstein and, um, uh, and but you can also study applied physics. So you could look at the output of physics and its application to a whole range. It's not strictly engineering, but it has this split within the natural sciences. So I thought, imagine this is buried in the book. Imagine that we took the humanities and we said, you, we restore to you full freedom. So you don't have to justify your output in terms of economic functioning people mm -hmm. that you're going to churn out. Even if you want philosophers out there who can work in business. No, no, no. That's a, that's a positive output, you know, as a marginal thing, but not sure. the purpose of it. But what happens if you had pure discipline where you had students coming in, studying uh, literature, philosophy, uh, political science, economics, but studying it as an end in itself to truly grasp it and all of its exploring it, having the uh, scholarly traditions continue in their various different forms. And what, and, but what happens if we had a type of humanities which I could call the applied humanities? And their purpose was entirely to imagine and explore alternatives to our social forms, our political forms, and our economic forms, because I, I, I should say that's the other reason that I'm not so keen on the right-left political split, because you tend to get the capitalist versus communist split. Mm. So although the book says against capitalist education, it doesn't say that the alternative is communism, because I think that's a problem. There's all kinds of historical elements to that, and I'm not at all persuaded that there can only be one alternative, that you have to be either one or the other. So my idea is that you have this applied idea, a university built on the idea that its output is to explore, develop alternatives for the purpose that one of those alternatives will work. And if one of those alternatives work, we have the chance of a real possibility of a global civilization, which vaguely would resemble our current systems, would have democratic principles and stuff that we value enormously, but aren't locked down to it. And it's a hugely, hugely productive or a generative type of activity. So um, I sort of, you know, rambled a bit no, unintentionally. But I, I sort of hope that gives a bit of a picture of what the book is trying to do. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I, I mean, I think just hearing you talk about the subject, we can sort of hear the passion that you have and that you put into the book. So I think that's right. perfect. That's perfect. Um, but if we could, you know, we're kind of we're kind of coming uh, uh, closer to the end. Uh, okay. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, um, you know, who who do you hope reads this book, and then and if people have already read it, and like what was their sort of response to to the style. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, um, I've had um, lots and lots of friends who are teachers, mm -hmm. and I do teach as well, I should say. Uh, and uh, 
they found okay so te- i would say teachers if i were to give one audience i would say teachers should just read it mm. it's it's an afternoon read because it's it's not written in technical jargon deliberately to make it accessible i would hope that teachers would see in it all the things that they feel on a day-to-day basis with that frustration that sense that idealism which most teaching people in the teaching profession really genuinely hold even secretly but hold the sense that you can transform lives and the feeling that something is going wrong with the system it, i would hope that it would help stimulate and draw that together but not in a way that would make people more resentful i think the big problem is is that if you over criticize systems everyone just gets depressed and down and no one wants to be down and depressed they'll just go and what you know they'll just switch off something that will inspire them to think actually as a teacher you know i do something like this when i do my best teaching so i would say teachers i would actually love policy makers mm, as right, well right um people in government positions who are saying you know who's who what do you mean an alternative how could you formulate an alternative so although this doesn't flesh one out it puts the seeds in for um so i think some substantial resolutions of a whole range of questions of how you could move this thing forward i would say policy makers as well um and people who like philosophy but don't like the modern they're not necessarily academically involved anymore they might have done um, their undergraduate degree but they still have an interest in philosophical questions because there are tons of them in the book sure. and it helps i suppose it would allow a reader to dip their toe get a sense of familiarity so the the people i know who've read it are really excited by the reading style but they're non-academics i mean mm. they were excited by the accessibility of it sure. the ease with which you could conjure up in your mind two people sitting down and just letting this conversation unfold they got excited by um um the the, the idealism the possibility of here someone coming along not giving you a formula not saying the system's wrong here's the better one but education should be the place where we all create enough freedom to generate and explore alternatives now that's a, a big big proposition it's almost like a a proposition for a generation to take on board and see how you know i i have this crazy image that there'll be one child born if this infected our culture who was uh inspired to you know learn that they'd be imaginative as a child but also develop their mathematical and critical skills who might formulate an idea of how we could resolve our economic political and social issues including religion because religion is such a big issue for all of us globally um and it worked now that is a major fantasy but what an amazing possibility so in the back of my mind i wonder that there are children the older people as well but there is possibly a person not born today who in this climate this culture this institution this approach would be inspired to do that and there wouldn't be a gene roddenberry in the sense that they would just produce a show but they would produce an idea that just worked mm. and uh, that's my instinct Mm, that's fantastic. That's a, that's a great, I think, uh, uh, final word on the book. That that's really that's really great. Um, unless you unless you want to add one more, but I do have one more question that we usually ask. Yes, no, please do. Sure. Please do. Um, so we always ask on the New Books Network. You know what what are you doing next? What you you did this? So what's your next project? I understand you have a podcast, but you have that. Yes. Can you tell us about that and maybe um, any other project that you'd like to let us know about. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well. Um, One is a podcast which I'm inviting lots and lots of people on 
ordinary lay people, as well as teachers, as well as hopefully a few professors in education, just to discuss their ideas, to open up these conversations um, in and around the book that the book opens up. But on uh, and, uh, the next writing project is, um, so you know I mentioned um, aliens and how an alien might view the world. Well, this work that I developed, it's so alien that I can't quite get my head around what it is I've created. I've got it on the wall while I'm talking to you in front of me, and I stare at it every single day, and I work with it. But what it inspires, you know the film 2001? Sure. I, I, I put it like this. In 2001, when that big monolith appears on the moon, the, the story, you know, they go off to Jupiter because they interpret the signal, and off they go to find these aliens. But what if that monolith emitted a signal of a type of language and a type of idea that took some time to interpret, but it was so radically fresh and it, it kind of did something with our religious ideas, our political, our economic ideas, our social, our psychology, so radically exciting and different. Um, that is what I'm working on now. The work is substantial. I mean, you can go to the website and you'll see me attempt to sort of articulate bits and pieces of it. This, not, it's not mathematics. It's more like a, a form of uh, thinking, I suppose, a form of thought. But it is so radically different. It just doesn't fit any convenient category. My idea would be to try to articulate that really clearly without losing people on the way and generate a massive amount of excitement around it. Okay. Well, those, <laughs> those both sound like great projects that, uh, that we'll definitely, uh, look forward to in the future. And, and we'll provide a link, uh, for anyone who's listening, uh, uh, for the podcast as well. So that'll be, that'll be nice, but, uh, I, I will come to the end and I just want to thank, uh, Nadim uh, Bakshav and, uh, thank you for, for joining us. And, and we can, we can hear the passion in, in this podcast. So that's really great. Um, and I want to tell everyone to go check out against capitalist education. What is education for? Uh, and to everyone who joined, uh, hope you learn. Thank you.